I'd like to thank Mr. Higginson for his kind words tonight, uh, reminding me too of uh, the anniversary. 48 years seems to be an awful long time, and yet uh, these years fly by, and you don't notice until suddenly you're presented with a calendar at one of the years, January, and you say, oh, where did all those years go? Well, we praise the Lord for his faithfulness, and we owe everything to him. I did say in preparation for tonight that I would endeavor to explain some of the scriptures that are used in this book that bears my name, The Land and the Book, it's called. And perhaps tonight, although uh, many, many scriptures are found in these pages. There is uh, a noted concentration on scripture. My thought in preaching those sermons years ago was not to present my views, but just to explain scripture itself in language that everybody in the service could understand. May I add my word of welcome, too, to those of you who have come tonight for this service. And perhaps an explanation for the book uh, will be appropriate. But I had a big birthday last year, fell on the month of June. And friends in the SGAT, SGAT stands for Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. And some of you know of Mr. Toms. You've met him. You may have heard him speak. And he is recognized as the representative of SGAT. And kind friends there, SGAT, felt that they would like to recognize my birthday. And how would they do that? By publishing a book of sermons. Now, the series of sermons that they chose was preached in our Newton Abbey a congregation going back to November 2013. And looking at the book itself as a production, Reverend Brian McClung has really done a phenomenal job because he took it on himself uh, to translate the preaching. He had the recordings, yes, but there is a huge amount of work involved in translating the recording of a sermon, never mind a series of sermons, and getting them into print. So I'm very, very much indebted to him. And in my opinion, he's done an excellent job. I think I can say I'll never forget that series because this series of meetings that I preached in Newton Abbey has a history. Namely, I began on the Sunday night with a very sore throat, and I never like to have a sore throat, not just because it is sore, because with me, tendency is once I notice, ah, those signs are very ominous in that before long it'll develop, it'll be into my chest, and that'll make it exceedingly difficult to preach. So I did preach, and that Sunday night, then Monday came, things were getting 
worse. And by Tuesday and Wednesday, it was really ominous. Indeed, I was very much concerned that perhaps I would have to cancel the rest of the meetings because uh, my voice was very much suspect. And uh, on Thursday night, I was entering into survival mode. And on Friday night, I, I knew it was touch and go. But the Lord answered prayer. And my last words in that sermon, we'll just say amen to it. When I uttered the last amen, my voice was finished. That was as far as I could go. And that was a token from the Lord that he gave me the voice to last out the entire series so I can raise a testimony uh, in saying I'll never forget those meetings because not only in the preaching do I know the Lord helped me, and he did, but also in regard to my voice, the Lord's hand was upon me then. Now, there are seven sermons in the book. It would be an advantage. Many of you have purchased this volume it is five pounds in the church. If you buy it, even in the SGAT office, it'll be seven pounds fifty. So you're getting a real bargain here. And if you have Christian friends, you might like to take two or three more volumes at five pounds. I think really I've got to say this is my opinion that this publication is substantially subsidized. Uh, a hardback volume of this quality produced for five pounds. There are seven sermons in the book. Of course, there is the expected foreword and the word of introduction by myself. And that foreword, or rather the introduction, consists of um, remarks made during the Bible reading. You will know by experience here in Lisburn that very often when I'm reading the Bible I'll be giving a running commentary as I go along. So some recognition has been paid to the running commentary as well as the sermon and that has in part been put into the introduction to this volume. I think therefore if you have the habit of looking at any book and passing by the introduction that you should not do that. I recommend Although uh, it's my introduction, I confess, I recommend that you go through that introduction. It really sets the scene for what comes afterwards in these chapters of the book entitled The Land and the Book. Now I say straight off, nothing beats a personal visit to the land of Israel. No matter how faithfully we minister or endeavor to explain the scriptures, we still can't create the atmosphere that unmistakably comes uh, to the fellowship of believers when they visit the land of Israel. So I think quite a number of you here tonight have been to the land of Israel at one time or another. If so, very likely you can remember standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, gazing over the Kidron Valley yonder. How could you forget it? The walls running round the ancient city, the Golden Gate there 
easily identified as you stand up there in all of it. Looking yonder to the golden dome, which marks the site of Solomon's temple on Mount Moriah, it awakens many thoughts, stirs our soul. Many a Christian has said, I have to come back. And others have said, it's so dear, I don't think I can afford to come back. But I've said, rest assured, you will be back. And that great day, listen, and that great day when the trumpet sounds, and the King of Glory comes, and the saints of God arise to meet him in the air, what a triumphant occasion! The King of Glory appearing in that critical hour, and we will be with him when he comes. Praise the Lord for that. Now, it might be helpful. I should say straight off, it would be an advantage for you to have a book in your hand. Um, no doubt some of you say, my book is uh, nice and cozy at home, and here I am in the service. But if you have the book in your possession now, I might just call a few pages here and there, and you can look up those pages, and I think that it is certainly a help to have the book in front of you, seeing that in the meeting I'm going to make reference to some of those scriptures that are given a key position in this book. I've mentioned the foreword in the introduction, and the subject titles are as follows. First of all, representing the Sunday night in that series, Abbey, The Great Tribulation. And secondly, God's everlasting covenant. And thirdly, the title deeds of the land. These three sermons go together, and we'll explain that in a moment. And then the interesting title, I hope it is anyway, The Old Bones and the Two Sticks. Next in line comes The Lifting of the Veil. That's the veil of blindness. A judicial Blindness is imposed upon the nation of Israel. And Romans chapter 11 explains all that. But the day comes when the veil, praise the Lord, the veil of that blindness will be lifted. And what then? We explore that uh, teaching and that subject, the lifting of the veil and then, of course, Israel in the millennium. After that, as sermon number seven, we have a talk now published here that was given on board uh, the bus. Out of all the years I have been helping uh, with tours to Israel, it's right to say none of the talks I, I gave have been published except this one. And we'll talk about it in a few moments. The Aravah. The Aravah is a desert region, an area in Israel. A desert region that I'm going to talk about later on. Let us turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 30. It's verse 7 in Jeremiah 30, which uh, features... The Great Tribulation. 
The verse marks the starting point for the service that Sunday night, way back in 2013. When I made reference to the beginning of the chapter, and certainly to verse 7 itself, just turning over the place now, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. Alas, the lamentation of the prophet, for that day is great. I'm pausing there for a moment. That day is great. There are no exaggerations in Scripture. If God refers to something as being great, you can certainly say, well, it is great. This is great as to its terror and as to its affliction and its grief. For that day is great so that none is like it. A time of trouble without equal in human history. That's the plain meaning of the language here. So that none is like it. And that's why it's called great. It is even, and this is a further line of ex- explanation, it is even the time of Jacob's trouble. So it is a time of trouble visited on this earth in the last days of this age, a time of trouble that focuses attention particularly on the land of Israel because it's the time of Jacob's trouble. You see that? The time of Jacob's trouble. I'm just tempted to enlarge, and I must not, because other scriptures have so much to say on that subject. Let me come to a note of triumph at the end, that he shall be saved out of it. The elect of Israel shall be saved out of it. God has his eye upon his ancient people. So that's Jeremiah 30 and 7. And it's a central verse in the, the, the preaching that night on the great tribulation. Although obviously we move on to other related portions of scripture. If you're looking at the book itself, it, it's on page 10 that we find reference made to the great tribulation. And I give a fair amount of time to the commencement to the chapter, emphasizing that the detail in Jeremiah 30 requires particularly close attention because, and this is emphasized to us in various ways at the beginning of the chapter, this is God's holy word, you see. And if we're sufficiently certified in regard to that, we'll be able to say, yes, then we have no hesitation in believing what God says. So the great tribulation in Jeremiah 30. And then moving on to Jeremiah 31, the subject there is God's everlasting covenant. And I did say the first three sermons in the book are linked in respect to the book of Jeremiah, inasmuch as chapter 30 features the great tribulation, in part, and 
Chapter 31 refers to God's everlasting covenant, the covenant that shall never be broken, a covenant made again with the elect of Israel, but shared by Gentile believers the world over. So we ourselves share in that everlasting covenant. It requires a lot of explanation. That explanation is certainly given in the appropriate chapter. And then in chapter 32, we have a most remarkable sequence of uh, events because Jeremiah 32 has to do with title deeds. And we're thinking there of God's title deeds to the land of Israel. But in particular, it's a circumstance in the life of Jeremiah the prophet. Well, Jeremiah is in prison at this time. And prison is a wretched place for him. And Jeremiah has a very difficult time. He really struggles. And we don't blame him. Perhaps we could not exist at all in those ancient jails. But Jeremiah was in prison. And perhaps in meditation, he began to think about uh, his family inheritance. And there was a field in Anathoth. Anathoth was the city of priests. And just uh, placed there on the outskirts of Jerusalem. In fact, Anathoth is still identified to this day. And occasionally in some of our tours, depending on the routine followed, we have stood on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives and we have looked away not only over the Judean wilderness, but also been able to pick out Anathoth. That's Jeremiah's hometown. And Nebuchadnezzar encamped in Anathoth. And the people who made up the population then were particularly oppressed and brokenhearted and distressed so that the scripture cries, O poor, poor Anathoth. Poor Anathoth. There was not an army which showed more hideous cruelty and the army of Nebuchadnezzar. And he had thoughts of the field, about buying a field, which he, he just threw out the window immediately. He'd be buying no field because he's a prisoner and he knows full well the 70 years captivity. 70 years! The 70 years captivity is already underway. So it's out of the question to buy a field in Anathoth. But in this vision which he received, he could see his uncle coming in and putting the proposition to him, buy the field, Jeremiah. And that's what happens. I don't know how long a time expired between this vision that Jeremiah had of his uncle's approach, but his uncle came right enough. He made the proposition, and Jeremiah was obliged to make the purchase. And the whole chapter is so interesting to see the amount of money weighed in the balances, so that the amount was secure and identified as being appropriate for the purchase to be completed. And then there were witnesses. 
signatures were made. It was all certified in a formal way. And Jeremiah cried out because of that purchase. I think he was saying, in effect, Lord, what's the meaning of this? Because this captivity is going to last for 70 years. And Jeremiah is a, a young man, yes, but old enough to know he'll never last out 70 years. What's the sense of this? And then he cries out to the Lord, Lord, is anything too hard for thee? And the Lord replies by saying, no, there's nothing too hard for me. And usually when you get that kind of expression in the Bible, you have to say, well, there's something afoot here. There's a mystery attached to this. And it's of the kind that makes a man say, oh, that can never be. That's utterly impossible. The birth of Isaac, for example. The parents at the birth of Isaac, a hundred years of age each, uh, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a time when that statement is found in Scripture. And here again with Jeremiah's purchase, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the Lord takes it up and replies in the same tone back to uh, Jeremiah, there's nothing too hard for me. Well, it was Jeremiah suggesting that when the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, would come back again and establish Israel in the land of promise in a truly wonderful fashion, that Jeremiah would rise like Daniel standing in his lot at the end of the days to inherit his field. Because Jeremiah never did use the deeds and gain the property way back in his lifetime. But the Lord so established that arrangement, that purchase of the field, as to certify it and bring the witnesses and put the seal on the engagement. It's, it's all too serious to be cast away and left to molder in the dust. There's something more to be said here. And God is careful to say to uh, Jeremiah, put the document in an earthen vessel. And that would be for preservation. It could have been put in a lovely wooden structure. It could have been put inside a brass ornament or a silver one. But the Lord chose an earthen vessel. And we make some comments on that in this book. But it uh, reminds us of the old... Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, doesn't it? Uh, they were found in earthen vessels. And there must be something about the earthen vessel with all the changes in the atmosphere over the years and seasons coming and going that there's great powers of preservation, shall we say, in that means of storage. But that, that happened there. And so we have the three chapters... Chapter 30 for the tribulation, chapter 31 for the covenant. And I do wish time would permit us to expand on that covenant, which is 
mentioned in Hebrews chapter 8 and also in Hebrews chapter 10. But I have sometimes said to a hesitant Christian, they say, notice the terms of the covenant. That in the making of the covenant, Scripture in Hebrews chapters 8 and 10 says, I have made this covenant with them. I have said, it doesn't say, as you might expect, I have made this covenant with you, namely the Gentile believers. But I have made this covenant with them. And I have just posed the question, who is referred to here with the pronoun them? But Israel, the nation who came out of Egypt, those who struggled in the wilderness, and God says, I have made with them this unbreakable and everlasting covenant. And we tonight, as Gentile believers, we have been fully received on the terms of that same covenant. And so, in that sense, the covenant is ours to share as well. But these chapters, chapter 30, chapter 31, chapter 32, with the title deeds for the land, uh, they all belong together with chapter 33, which I didn't manage to fit in at any great length in the series. These four chapters go together. Chapter 30 through to 33. I think that most important in itself. If you're reading these chapters at one sitting, that will be a start. I, I have called them uh, the little apocalypse. Apocalypse is the name for the book of the Revelation. Apocalypse makes us think of uh, the unveiling of all that is to take place in the last days. And here we have four chapters strung together in the book of Jeremiah that concerns uh, God's purpose for Israel in the last days, in the times to come when the Lord brings his people back to the land to be established there as the people of its inheritance and his people. These are powerful scriptures. And there are similar chapters, four chapters at a time, in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of Ezekiel. And I have termed each one the little apocalypse. Four chapters, 30 to 33. And then... With the old bones and the two sticks. Really, that's a, a theme in Ezekiel chapter 37. You've heard Mr. Higginson preach there not terribly long ago on the visit of the prophet to the valley of the dry bones. How often it has proved a stirring basis for the prayers of God's people concerning revival in our time. The greatest revival ever seen is portrayed in Ezekiel 37, and that's featured in the message entitled The Old Bones and the Two Sticks. Uh, chapters 36 and 37 in Ezekiel really go together, and you can add in indeed chapter 38 and 39, because that would be the little apocalypse in Ezekiel chapter 36 through to chapter 39. But particularly 
36 and 37 go together because the doctrine of Israel's restoration is taught in Ezekiel 36, whereas in chapter 37, with the old bones and the two sticks, the Lord teaches this very moving lesson concerning his purposes for the future. And then what shall be said of uh, the meeting on Thursday night in that series, which uh, is addressed in page 88 of the book. It's called The Lifting of the Veil, and I'm just going to take time, if I may, and get across there to, uh, although this is a new book, and its pages don't turn all that easily for me, but page 88 in the book is entitled The Lifting of the Veil, and on that account we visit Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 begins with a, que- or begins with a question. And I'm just making reference to it now. It's a question of supreme interest because it goes like this. I say then, hath God cast away his people? The question then automatically arises, what people? What people is this? Who exactly is referred to now as his people? Well, the answer has to be Israel. The people of Israel. And I have said that ultimately in God's purpose, it will be the elect of Israel. Because as has been true in all history, there have been those in Israel who do not belong uh, to the Lord and his people, except in a physical manner. For example, Judas Iscariot will not be in heaven. Judas Iscariot will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sad to say, that man is lost and lost forever. So the Bible does speak about Jews in hell. You're not guaranteed uh, an everlasting salvation because you happen to be born literally of the stock of Jacob. The message of the gospel is just the same from the very beginning of human history until now. If sinners will be saved at all, they must be saved by the grace of God. And in fact, whether they're Jew or Gentile, they must be saved. But the question comes up, because of Calvary and because of the inclusion of Gentile believers now in the body of Christ, what about Israel? And I have met good men, well-saved men, who will say without hesitation, Israel has no future. There's nothing in the purpose of God concerning that people now. In effect, they're saying God has abandoned Israel forever. There is no hope for that nation. And now, if Jews will be reached, they can only be converted and brought into the church. There will be nothing else for them 
in regard to the fulfillment of God's purpose. But here the scripture says, I say then, hath God cast away? What about Israel? Has God abandoned Israel? That surely is the sense here. Because of Calvary, because of uh, Gentiles being brought into and forming the body of Christ, has the Lord nothing more for Israel? Has he finished with the stock of Jacob? Hath God cast away his people? Now, because good men know Romans 11 very well, as I think you do too, they know well enough to answer the question, yes, I can give you without hesitation an answer to the question. And the answer to the question is, God has not cast away his people. But when it comes to what they believe, that's different. I have been reproved by some worthy gentlemen for preaching about Israel, preaching about Jerusalem. And two men waited one night, and it'd be a very interesting story, but I mustn't make a detour here tonight and say they were very disturbed by my preaching. And at the end, they were waiting. To, to greet me. What are you preaching about Jerusalem down here for? You should be preaching about Jerusalem above. And I said, it's true that I preach about Jerusalem down here, and it's also true that I preach about Jerusalem above. And the conversation ensued from that. But they were quick to say, God has no purpose for Israel now. In effect, there's no future for Israel. So those gentlemen, although they're well saved, and we have nothing to say against them as believers, they would have to say an answer to this question. Hath God cast away his people? Yes, he has. They would have to say, yes, he has cast it away. But, but, but they, would, they wouldn't want to confess it because they know that Romans 11 and 1 plainly says, No! God forbid! That's a negative. God has not abandoned Israel. He has not forgotten Jerusalem. He has not forgotten his ancient people. For Paul says here, I am an Israelite. I'm a Jew of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people. And they foreknew. The elect of Israel have not been cast away and will not be cast away. And Elijah made a mistake when he said long ago to the Lord at Mount Sinai, he said, Lord, I'm the only one left. And I may as well finish my journey now, he's saying to the Lord. First Kings 19 will give you that account. Not so long ago, St. Vincent Higginson was preaching on that chapter. But God said to Elijah, I have reserved to myself this is Romans 11 and 4. I have reserved to myself 
7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, Elijah didn't know that. And that raises an interesting point, does it not? The prophets didn't always manage to uh, know everything. And Elijah thought he was right when he said, I'm the only one left. I only, he says. I'm the only one doing right. Now, some Christians in, in our time have adopted a similar attitude as if they too can say to the Lord, I'm the only one who's faithful. I'm the only one who's holding up the flag and running the race. That's not true. Elijah didn't know of the 7,000, but the Lord knows about the 7,000. And the Lord has a purpose in view. The Lord has a people in mind, and they'll never, never turn away from that. We have the lifting of the veil, which was preached from Romans chapter 11, and it's very, very striking, a subject for every Christian uh, to think carefully about. Uh, Israel in the Millennium, that's page 108, uh, still continues with the theme in Romans 11. But we have the scripture quoted there, Romans eleven twenty five. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. The Gentile Christian is warned not to be filled with conceit about himself. Namely, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. True enough, I said at the start, a judicial blindness has descended upon Israel. In addition to the natural blindness of the human heart, we have to speak of the ungodly in the district around this church, blinded by sin. That's a natural blindness. And Israel suffers from natural blindness like that. The unconverted among them, that is. But in addition to all that, a judicial blindness is a judgment. It's additional to the natural handicap from which the unbeliever suffers. It's an imposed judgment. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until... The little word until is of the highest significance. It doesn't say this blindness in part, in part, is imposed upon Israel forever. As some have argued with their particular brand of theology, God has abandoned Israel. There's no future for them. But the word here is until. It's not permanent. It's not forever, but only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God will finish his work among the Gentiles. At the moment, God's work is very largely in Gentile hands. 
And we think about Gentile churches, Gentile preachers, Gentile congregations. For example, tonight, everyone here is a Gentile. The word Gentile just refers to a person who doesn't belong by nature to Jacob's stock. You're not a Jew. You're a Gentile. But this period when God has been working among the Gentiles... And Israel has continued in blindness, will not go on forever. Do you know that? The day hastens on apace, and we will reach the end of this age, and the trumpet will sound, when the king will come, and all will be changed, even in that hour. We can't tarry here with Israel in the millennium, but we have different aspects of the millennium discussed there. Days of heaven upon earth during the millennium, uh, the importance of the events that are mentioned with respect to it. What are these days of heaven upon earth like? The question is asked in the book. And the whole world is transformed when the Lord comes back. Creation itself, even the animal creation, undergoes a change, and Romans 8 shows us that as well. There will be peace on earth. There is longevity promised unto men. Oh, what a change will take place in the believer. Well, in that day we shall be like him. What a change will take place in Israel when that judicial blindness is lifted and the veil is taken away. And they see him. They see him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah 13, verse 6 anticipates that hour. To see him. And they will realize then not only do those wounds in his hand and his feet and his side condemn them, but also they can say, by his stripes, we are healed. Revelation 20 is discussed there, and that's a key chapter, naturally. I want to finish tonight by talking about the last chapter in the book. It's called the Appendix. It really consists of a talk we gave in the coach as we made our way uh, down the Arava. And we have some slides here that perhaps we can look at. Not many, but just to illustrate what we're talking about. If we can uh, look at slides on the screen and see, I think, the Golden Dome. Is that correct? Uh, so we're looking across uh, from, let's say, Gethsemane. And between us and the wall of the old city, there is the plunging uh, valley of uh, the Kidron, sometimes called in Scripture the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, and over that valley, which descends to a greater depth than many people realize, and how steep are the sides of that valley, the Kidron Valley, it would test us, any of us out to walk down and then up again. Such um, is the nature of this ravine that we call the Kidron Valley. 
the old wall of the city, the golden gate is oftentimes pictured there. The golden dome itself stands in the place, although it's now a mosque, and it stands in the place of Solomon's temple. So it does indicate where Mount Moriah is. And it was there that David saw the angel of the Lord in that critical moment when Jerusalem was spared. There is a tremendous history here. If we can go to uh, the next slide, and I will see if we can turn to the next slide. Yes, we have uh, a map to look at of the Sinai Peninsula. Um, I think it might be best for me to walk out here and then I can see where we are. So up here we have uh, the, the Dead Sea and across halfway between the top of the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean coastline there is the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives is just immediately to the east of the city of Jerusalem. The Arava itself, this part of the desert that has gained our attention, uh, is part of the desert from, let's say, Jericho up here, running down the side of the Dead Sea, onwards parallel to the border of Jordan, on down to Eilat. Sometimes on tour, we have completed this journey. And on the tour in question, we were to take the coach from uh, our hotel, which was on the southern shores of the Dead Sea. And almost immediately, we had access into the, the longest road in the country of Israel. It's called Route 90. And Route 90 runs away from Mount Hermon in the north, uh, right down the valley of the Jordan River. And uh, now we pick it up here at uh, the Dead Sea and continue all the way. It, it, it really takes us, without having to race uh, at an unwelcome speed, it really takes the coach three hours to journey from uh, where we were at the southern edge of the Dead Sea, motoring all the way down there toward Eilat. It was a journey of three hours. That meant, um, for that's covering about 100 miles, more or less. We had to start early in the morning, and some of our people didn't like starting early in the morning, but there was nothing else for it because we wanted to have a very pleasant lunch on board ship in the Red Sea. And that morning I was guide because uh, we had two coaches. And the regular guide, he was in the first coach, so I was left in the second coach to be guide. And I felt, looking over the folks in the coach, half of them were asleep. But the other half were very bright-eyed. They looked like they were eager to get going with something. So I said, I oblige. How about talking to you about the Aravel? Just where we are now. This part of the Negev Desert called the Aravel. I have explained it in the book in 
clearest detail. And I thought, well, just take the scriptures and look at this word, Arava. Perhaps we can uh, move to the next slide. And there we can see how, um, in close-up, we have uh, the southern end of the Dead Sea, as before. Uh, up here, the northern tip of the Dead Sea, and all of this area here, and even higher than that in ancient time, would have composed uh, the Arava. But principally now, uh, Jews and Israel will think of the Arava as being this territory, running down the side of the Dead Sea and proceeding all the way to uh, Eilat, roughly, a hundred miles below, as we have said. And we, we took this journey in, in the coach into the Arava. Let's move to the next slide. Uh, here we have uh, a map showing the contours of the land. And uh, once more, a southern tip of the Dead Sea. And, uh, because it's an old map, it doesn't show the modern road naturally. But that road would run right down to Eilat here, which uh, is on the uh, shoreline of this part of the Red Sea. The Red Sea is like the capital letter V with two arms. So one, the eastern arm of the Red Sea is here, and the western arm is out of sight of our map, although it's partially noticed uh, right here, this part of the Red Sea. This is the part of the Red Sea that part to the west which Israel crossed in the days of Moses. Uh, Mount Sinai is just out of sight here, but we're close to it, very close in this map, but out of sight just down where we circle this red dot. And we were making this journey then uh, down through the Arava, and we get here to this part of um, the Arava. We're looking across toward Mount Hor, and that's where, in the 40th year of Israel's travels, Aaron, the high priest, passed into the Lord's presence. Next slide. And we have a, a view of uh, the high ground here of uh, Pisgah, where Moses viewed the landscape over. And it's part of the same territory, but on the far side of the Jordan River, on the far side of this border between the state of Jordan and Israel. Now, next slide. A, a view uh, from, again, from high ground in the Arava. And the next slide. Here we can see how um, the, the valley of the Arava uh, moves right down here, surrounded by uh, these high mountains on every side, and tracks in the desert, so that the Arava is a place where uh, you could not survive for very long if you did not have provisions and adequate care. Next slide. Another view of the Arava, just barren desert. And for what it's worth, mountains in the distance, hills and valleys, but all the while they're viewing a scene of utter desolation. And there are no green fields, 
filled with contented sheep grazing on every side. No, no, nothing. But as one lady said one time, quite accurately, nothing but dust and stones. And the journey is a hundred miles long. And I would have, maybe after an hour, stopped folks in their thinking and said, look out the window. Tell me what you see. You're still in the Oroville. We have been traveling for an hour now in this coach, and we're still in the Oroville. The lesson being, I want you to notice when Scripture talks about the Oroville, we're talking about a huge, huge slice of territory, far larger than you could ever have anticipated. Next slide. And there are wild goats on these. Uh, I'm not an expert in animal life, but I uh, think these are creatures called, uh, a brand of uh, antelopes called the oryx, with their straight horns raised above their head. And the next slide. Eventually we go to Mount Sinai. If we went far, far enough, far enough, down below Sinai, yet much further to the south, we would have Sinai itself where uh, Moses ascended. The bush that burned is never consumed. And there he had God's vision given to him concerning uh, the divine purpose for Israel, now weltering and slavery in the land of Egypt. Uh, Mount Sinai is so important. It was to Mount Sinai that uh, Elijah ran for refuge at that time when he slept under the juniper tree. Next slide. And the mountain goats, they're just like, uh, each one is like a miracle on four feet. How nimble they can manage the precipices where as you look at the path they're taking across the cliff face, there's nowhere safe. There is no path to walk on. And you have to say, it's an absolute marvel how these wild goats, ibex, can manage their way across the sheer face of that precipice. And David prayed when he kept company with animals like these, Lord, make my feet like hinds' feet. I can negotiate the high places. Next, next slide. And there we have uh, some of the great ravines in uh, the Arava, and occasionally, but oh, very occasionally, there is a stream running through the desert, but God has spoken about rivers of water in high places. Uh, can I interest your attention in, in the Arava itself? And, oh, the word Arava in the Hebrew occurs 61 times, and 42 times it's translated plain, and nine times it's translated in our Bible as desert. I don't want you to think that every time you see the word plain in our Bible, that represents the Aravah. That would not be the case, because many different words are used to uh, signify the plain. But uh, I thought I should uh, take some of the examples 
of how the word appears in Scripture, first of all, to show the Arafah is not just any desert, but a certain place in Israel. It's a specific place. I wanted to take a reference to that. And then I wanted to show how it's illustrated in history. And I can't in an adequate way give uh, attention to that history now in this meeting, but to tell you the truth, I'd really love to. But, but it's mentioned in history. Then it's mentioned in prophecy. So I had these three things in mind that morning early in our coach when I spoke to those friends who were wide awake and ready to study the Bible. I said, first of all, I want to show you that the Aravah is a specific place. That when God uses this word, he had a definite area in mind and nowhere else. And secondly... Uh, the Aravah features in history. And thirdly, perhaps to your surprise, it features in the prophetic scriptures. Now, I can only summarize now that Deuteronomy 1 and 7 might be helpful for us if we can go there. Uh, Deuteronomy 1 and 7. And this is, remember, we're talking about scriptures used in the book itself, so... Uh, things are explained in more detail, more length, naturally, since uh, each talk is given separately. Deuteronomy 1 and 7. The intention now, in reference to Deuteronomy 1 and 7, is to show that when the word Arava appears in the Bible, now it's not in your English Bible, as I've explained, it's a Hebrew word, so it appears in the Hebrew Bible. Well, I'm here to do a wee bit of translation tonight, so you needn't be greatly perturbed about the thought of the difference in language. But Deuteronomy 1 and 7. Moses is saying to the children of Israel from Mount Horeb, from Mount Sinai, you can see that in verse 6, the Lord our God spake to us in Horeb, in Mount Sinai, if you like. You have dwelt long enough in this mountain. Turn you and take your journey and go to the mount. Here's the land of Israel described. With emphasis on the contours of the land. When we speak of the contours of the land, we're talking about mountains and the hill country and the valleys, the river beds. Distinctive areas of the country are in mind. And what in particular? Well, the places, all the places. There is a, a military uh, expedition in view. And in the book, it's page 126 and 127. And what we're saying there, the Aravah is a specific part of the land of Israel. And we're given a topographical study of the promised land in Deuteronomy 1 and 7. And this is principally for military purposes. And, and it, it delineates the Aravah as a definite place. For in Deuteronomy 1 and 7, take your journey, Moses is saying, go to the mount of the Amorites. The land of Israel is characterized by this mountainous backbone that runs, let's say, from Hebron right up northwards to Jerusalem. And then 
as if resuming again, will run from Jerusalem northwards up as far as Mount Gilboa, overlooking the valley of Jezreel. And uh, when we have a description of the land here, God starts with the mountains. All the place, the hills, the mountainous area, but he mentions to the plain, which is the Arava. So the Arava desert is as distinct as the mountainous backbone forming uh, the uh, key area, the identifiable area in the land of Israel. And by the veil, which in Hebrew is the Shephelah, and every Jew in Israel will use that term to describe the veil, which is the lowland, roughly speaking, from the west of Jerusalem outwards toward the sea, Mediterranean Sea. And even to this day, it's called Shephelah. That is here called the valley. And the south, the word is the Negev, the Negev Desert. These are all distinct parts of the land. Every part delineated carefully so that the Arava has to be a definite part of the land of Israel. And when the spies are sent out and they must give an answer regarding their exploration of the land of Israel, they'll talk about the hills, they'll talk about the Arava, they'll talk about the Shephela, they'll talk about the Negev Desert, on, it says there, to the seaside, which is the Mediterranean coast, obviously, and the land of the Canaanites, onto Lebanon in the far north, onto the Great River, way out to the northeast, the River Euphrates. So there's an outline of the entire area of the land of promise given here. And uh, let's see what we can do. Moses is saying, I'm not going to turn to this reference, chapter 2 and verse 8 of Deuteronomy, we passed by the Arava. And again, if we go to Isaiah chapter 35, and I confess that the subject deserves more attention than I can give it just now. But it's all detailed carefully in the book, and I will uh, encourage you to Read that book with your Bible in hand. Chapter 35, the book of Isaiah. Everyone has been familiar with at least part of this remarkable and beautiful chapter of God's Word. Uh, verse 1 of Isaiah 35. Again, we're showing uh, the Arava in the Scriptures and showing that... Uh, it's a distinct part of the land of Israel. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, glad for Israel, in the day of their return to the Lord. The word desert there, in chapter 35, verse 1, is in the Hebrew, the Arava. And I would suggest, and it's only a suggestion, that if you like to underline the word desert in Isaiah 35 and 1, and then put a capital A out in the clear space of the margin, it might signify to you in coming days that desert is the Arava, no less. 
And this desert is going to blossom like the rose one day. And I would say, as the bus trundled along to friends sitting there, this comfortable air-conditioned coach in the midst of summer, not wrestling with the colossal heat, feeling that they're going to perish any moment, given the kind of territory they're in. They, they really know nothing about it, just sitting back in plush comfort, coasting along, and saying, ah, oh, know this, the desert, look out the window, this is the Arava desert you're in, it's going to blossom like the rose one day. Isn't that marvelous? And, and verse 2 says, not only will it blossom, but it will blossom abundantly. And people will see, verse 2, the closing lines, they shall see with their eyes, they shall see the glory of the Lord. That's the Shekinah glory. But even if some child of God was to say, no, I don't believe it will be visible, but it will be some other kind of glory. Suppose you take that view, yet it's something that can be seen. It's something that can be demonstrated. And if we sail through the uh, Arava desert these days, we can only see the dust and the stones and the distant hills. We're not going to say the desert has started to blossom like a rose and blossoming abundantly. And not only blossoming abundantly, but blossoming in such a way as to reveal the glory. I believe we're talking about something that can be seen, namely the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud and fire. And that will come to our attention later. And again, in verse 6, you'll see toward the end of verse 6, in the wilderness shall waters break out a marvelous transformation of the Arava will occur and streams in the Arava. So instead of dust and stone for mile after mile and sheer desolation on every side, this part of the world is going to be miraculously, supernaturally transformed on account of these streams watering the desert. And the desert becomes, because of that irrigation, becomes a place where it blossoms with all sorts of fruit in that day. Isaiah 40 then. If you look at this chapter, comfort ye, comfort ye, a double comfort is spoken off here for uh, the redeemed of Israel. At verse 2, speak comfortably, that is, speak to the heart of those in Jerusalem and cry unto her that her struggles are over. Her warfare is concluded. Uh, it is accomplished in the word that's given here in our authorized version. And she has received of the Lord's hand double for all our sins, double chastisement. I spoke earlier of a double blindness and all that is imposed in that account Double judgment, but double blessing. It's like Benjamin's portion. She has received of the Lord's hand. That comes forth in verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye. Do you see the twofold rendition of that promise? Comfort ye. It could have said it just the once, but no, it's doubled up. 
And this word of promise is directed to the heart, as the margin will show for verse 2. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem. Her warfare is ended. Oh, when will the last shot be fired in Jerusalem? When will the last house tumble down? When will the last family stricken with grief march in that solemn procession toward the burying place with lots of tears showing a broken heart and a desolated home? The land of Israel is still visited with tragedy right through to the very last hour when the Saviour comes, until the day comes when our warfare is accomplished. But let me come to verse 5. The glory of the Lord, that's the Shekinah glory, will be revealed. The word revealed means to make abundantly clear, to be so visible you can do nothing else but observe what is in view. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed in this day when the Lord comes. And they will make straight in the desert. You see the last line of verse 3. In the desert, a highway for our God. The word desert there is the Arava. In the Arava desert, the glory of God is going to be revealed in a, a powerful manner. Because verse 5 is very significant here. The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, that's the pillar of cloud and fire, will be revealed. It will be visible. It will be made clear even to all men and all flesh shall see it. Now, does that grip your attention or does it not? All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. When the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time, uh, there were those in Israel who saw him. But all flesh did not see him when he came the first time. Only those who were favored of God uh, stood in his presence, listened to his uh, teaching, and saw his wonderful power at work. The rest of the world didn't see it. But when the Lord comes the second time, he will appear in, in, in such a marvelous fashion that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And the world will not doubt for a second, even the most difficult unbeliever, the glory of God, the Lord will be seen coming in that day when he appears. And then verse 5 says again, all flesh shall see it. The entire world. This is universal in its application. All flesh means all mankind. As I say, when the Lord came the first time, multitudes saw him, but it could not be said the entire world saw him. But when he comes the second time, that will be the case. All mankind will see him. All flesh. Take your pen and underline the words all flesh. You know when you think about it, that's what it signifies. All the world over will see him. And they'll see him together. 
In Israel, when the Lord came the first time, when he was in Galilee, the crowds who lived up there, they saw him. But way down in Judea, people there didn't see him because obviously uh, they couldn't be in every place at once. So all flesh, even in the time of his earthly ministry, all the people in Israel didn't see him together. But this time, such is the nature of his appearing, all flesh will see him together, just like one man. When the Lord appears, the whole world will see him just then. Now, that that is certain is guaranteed by the fact the last line of verse 5, you see how it runs? The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That means there can be no question about it, that the Lord has said it. In verses 9 and 10, three times over you're told, Behold, behold your God. Behold the Lord God will come. Behold his reward is before him. Three times over we're told to look for his appearing. That's Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 18 and 19 and 20. We did mention this in the coach. And with great effect, I will open rivers and high places, and so on, fountains in the midst of the valley, the wilderness and the dry land are blessed. Here we have in the desert, you see the word desert in verse 19? In the Hebrew Bible, that's the Arava. So the Arava, instead of just mountains and stones and dust, there are forests fruitful fields and in particular seven types of tree will grow in the Arava as if they're native to that area of the country. Nowadays you couldn't plant any of these trees in the Arava unless you would have to do something with the land around it in a very uh, noticeable fashion cedar, shita tree, and uh, the myrtle, the oil tree, and then these three. The fir tree, the fine, and the box tree. The fir tree, remember, the pine, and the box tree. These are trees that require an immense amount of water. You couldn't grow any of these seven trees mentioned in verse 19, in the Aravah today, unless you did something very spectacular. But not by nature. I speak of trees that are native to the place. Remember uh, the three trees, three types, the fir tree, the pine, and the box tree, require, let's say, gallons and gallons of water to grow. So for them to grow in the Aravah desert will require a supernatural performance of some kind, a great miracle will be required. And the Lord knows all about these trees because, let's note it, he made them. He created them that way. He created these trees so that they require lots and lots of irrigation. And they can't grow at all unless there's plenty of water flowing by. Can't grow. And, and God's going to plant these trees in the Arvah. And this shows that a supernatural miracle will take place 
in the, in the Arava. And God says in verse 20, here's the natural conclusion. Four verbs are seen, uh, they're combined in verse 20. And these are just simple words. See, and know, and consider, and understand. If we talk about a miracle of the kind to let the fir tree grow, and the pine and the box tree grow in uh, what today is an unnatural habitat, the Arava Desert, for these trees to grow in abundance means the country is no longer a desert. But it's like a lovely garden. And besides the fir tree and the pine and the box tree requiring lots and lots and lots of water, remember God created them that way. So the Lord's not thrown into difficulty suddenly by the appearance of these trees. No, he made them that way to certify that uh, in the great day of the Lord's coming when the country's so transformed, the, the nature of the terrain there and the country called the Arava will be remarkably transformed. And these trees, because the desert will blossom abundantly like the rose. It's just remarkable. Uh, now, could, could I linger with the verbs to see, to know, to consider, and understand? Let's take something utterly amazing, like this event here described in Isaiah 41, to really take it in, you might say, I'd have to see it. Well, okay, then let's see it. We, we're seeing it now by faith, of course. And then when you see the transformation that's described here so vividly, you see that transformation taking place, you will know this has to be God's work. And when you know, having seen it for yourself, and you know this is surely God's work and no mistake, you then begin to consider God's purpose here and what the Lord has been doing. And finally, A to Z, every letter in place, you've got an understanding. I see it now. That's quite remarkable. I want to bring it all to a close as quickly as I can. Let me use two scriptures. Isaiah 51. So let us move over to chapter 51 in the book of Isaiah to the verse 3. We're still talking about the Arava desert. And the word desert appears in chapter 51, verse 3. Again, you can underline the word because that's the Arava. And you can write the capital letter A out in the margin if it assists you in that matter. Well, what does it say in Isaiah 51 and 3? For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He'll comfort all her waste places. He'll make her wilderness like Eden. Just like the Garden of Eden. Is that a transformation or not? It most certainly is. Where before it's dust and stones and uh, those distant hills. No, it's remarkably changed. So wonderfully transformed. And these trees that could never, never grow there before are now native to the place. A remarkable transformation is described. 
He will make her wilderness like Eden's garden. We need, do you know tonight, we all need to be in that coach traveling through uh, in the early morning through the Arava desert for me to say, look out the window and see where you are. You're still in the Arava desert. It's a huge, huge place. After two hours motoring in the coach, we're still in the Arava desert. And some idea of uh, how immense this tract of land really is begins to dawn upon you. And the desert shall blossom like a rose, as the scripture says here, chapter 51, like the Garden of Eden. Now that's saying something. And indeed, the whole country will be like the Garden of Eden. If you're making a note, you can make a note of Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 35. And you'll see substantially the same thing is said there, just like the garden of the Lord. The land of Israel is so completely transformed, and the rest of the world will be impacted by the change as well, that that wilderness is so changed, it becomes like the garden of Eden. Of Eden. And joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. That's chapter 51, verse 3. Can we go to Ezekiel, chapter 36? And this again is an incredible statement in Ezekiel, chapter uh, sorry, I gave you the wrong reference there. Uh, chapter 47, it should be. Ezekiel chapter 47. What we're saying, it will require a miracle of incomprehensible proportion to change the Arava desert and to make it like the Garden of Eden. Months ago, and I mean months ago, so just a few months, a young man was listening to me preach. It wasn't a prophetic sermon as such, but it happened to, uh, I happened to use a prophetic passage and explain it. And after the meeting, he came to me and said, I, I was listening to you speaking there about that prophecy. He said, I have been taught some theology, and the theology I have, he said, doesn't correspond to what you're saying. Let's say it was this here. Let's say it was, the Aravah will become like the Garden of Eden. My, my theology doesn't correspond to that, he said. And how can you say the things you said tonight, given uh, the scheme of theology I have studied so clearly, how can we explain the difference? I said, that's a good question. Let me answer it by putting a question to you. And he agreed. I said, those explanations I gave for those scriptures tonight, and you were able to pick them up, can you now say those explanations I gave word for word, Line for line, those explanations I give correspond insofar as words have any sense at all 
may correspond to the actual sense of the passage. I said, is that true? Did what I say actually correspond to the language God the Holy Spirit uses in the Bible? And he answered at once. He said, what you said does make sense. And I said, well, I think that's the answer. And we come to God's prophetic word, and we find something there that's so plainly stated, we go along with what God says. That makes sense to me. I don't want ever to embrace some other notion and set an interpretation down in a passage that doesn't actually adhere to that verse and to those words. And when I speak about this verse, that verse, or another verse, I want to give the plain sense of the passage and tell you what those words mean, even though you can say, identifying them yourself. Yes, that's, that's what it says, true enough. That's what it says. That's all I want. I just want to find out what it says, what it actually says. And I, for one, I want to say this tonight. I, for one, I've long ago prayed about this. I, for one, I'm going to go along with what God says. I said to one brother one time, in the great judgment day, I will have to give an account of my ministry. And on that day, I would rather suffer for believing too much of the Bible than suffer in that day for believing too little of the Bible. He wasn't pleased, but that's the truth. I, I, if I'm going to learn anything from God's word, I have to accept the plain language and take the sense that must be given to the passage. Now look at this. This is incredible in, in, in uh, Ezekiel 47. Let me summarize rather than read every line because we have a difficulty of time. The waters are flowing in the desert. That's a miracle. And good men who have doubts about the plain language of prophetic scripture will say plainly, I, don't, I couldn't believe that. You might say of the Arava Desert and the transformation that I have described tonight, you might say, I couldn't believe it. But if you were to say that to me in person, do you know what my answer would be? It would be just simply this. I don't see how you can have a difficulty for in truth you already believe it. You, you already believe it. What am I referring to? Why did uh, God command Moses to strike the rock in the desert? Because there was no water there. And why did they need the water? Because without the water, Israel would have perished. Two and a half million people would have perished in the desert if they had been left with no water. God said, strike the rock. And out of that, read Psalm 78 and you'll be amazed at the language used. The waters gushed out like a river in the desert. And what I'm saying is, God has already done it. God has already done it. So a child of God, a good man, can't say, I don't believe that. 
You can't say that with any entitlement because I can answer back, but you do believe it already. There isn't a Christian alive in this country, I do believe. Not one believer will say, I don't believe the record in the Old Testament where Moses struck the rock and the waters flowed in the desert. I don't think one Christian will say, I don't believe that. And now the sense is, you believe it in history, but you will not believe it in prophecy. And I say, why not? What's the difference? If you can believe it of the past, you can certainly believe it of the future. It's no strain on your credulity. No, not at all. You believe it already. And everything, you see, the main points about the changes in the millennium, if we read about longevity, the length of days, people will live maybe a thousand years at a time. A man may say, oh, I don't believe that. But again, I say, listen, you already believe it. You already believe it. Because in Genesis 5, you'll read of this one and that one, and they're living for such a long time on earth, it's almost a thousand years. Take Methuselah. And there's not a Christian in this country, I do believe, will reject Genesis 5. And I therefore say with puzzlement, how come you believe it of the past and you can't believe it of the future? And the, the animal creation, the same. I, I don't believe the lion will lie down with the lamb. Don't believe that. I have to say, but you, you already believe it. How come? Because in Genesis chapter 2, in Eden's garden, the animal creation was there without any savagery at all. The lion and the lamb. Genesis chapter 2. You already believe it. So if you can believe it for history, why can't you believe it for prophecy? You just take the sense of scripture as it is. I stand four square over what scripture says. Why did God allow Moses to strike the rock and send water in the desert? Well, for the obvious reason, number one, that Israel would perish without the water. But there's another reason. God allowed Moses to strike the rock and send streams of water in the desert. He allowed that to happen because God's people living in this time would need that account, that narrative in the Old Testament to become the foundation for what they believe when the scripture says the very same thing about the future. You can see there's so much in these portions. And I hope that if you have the book, and if you have, and if you're interested in obtaining it, you can see our brother Sam Norton tonight. And, uh, sorry if I have detained you tonight. It's longer than I intended. But um, at the same time, in this book and all these chapters, there's a wealth of material and many, many scriptures that are plainly explained. And I trust the Lord will stir your heart and encourage you mightily in the presence of the Lord.